Jesus can bring life out of death. Do you believe that? Jesus can bring life out of death. It's just one of the things he does. Um, And he does it for his brothers and sisters. Are you a brother or a sister of Jesus Christ? Uh, Those who call him master, those who call him Lord, those who have placed their, their, their trust for salvation in him alone. Life out of death. The second message from Jesus uh, after last week's first message to the church in Ephesus is to the church in Smyrna. It's a great name, right? Smyrna. That's your hometown. And among the seven churches, this really little little interesting fact, among among the seven churches mentioned throughout Revelation chapter 2 and 3, only two of them, Smyrna and a church we're going to get to later called Philadelphia, not to be uh, confused with the city of brotherly love here in the States, Smyrna and Philadelphia receive all praise and all encouragement without any blame or accusation because of a sin. Wouldn't that be awesome for us at Grace Chapel if we got that kind of a letter? Well, let's see what makes Smyrna so special through the eyes of Jesus because it's through His eyes that things matter, not through our eyes necessarily. Verse 8 of chapter 2 of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is described here with words drawn right out of the vision John had of the risen Savior Jesus Christ back in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, that, that crazy, uh, amazing vision that dropped John to his knees as if he was dead. And Jesus is described here with words drawn from that vision, the words, the words of the first and the last. That, that, that's a phrase that's used throughout the book of Revelation for God and for Jesus Christ in the book. Uh, yeah, it's first and last here. We're going to see it alpha and omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And at the end of the book, it's going to be the beginning and the end. That's Jesus. As the one who died and came to life, Jesus can absolutely sustain the Christians in Smyrna who are enduring persecution. Jesus can also absolutely handle anything that comes into your life or my life today, this week. He can handle it. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. But he has a little aside here where he goes, but don't you guys know that you're rich? Don't you see that? I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander that you're enduring of those who say they're Jews, but they're really not, but they're really of the synagogue of Satan. Wow. The local unbelieving Jewish community in Smyrna um, instigated persecution against the, the Christians, many of them Jews, because the first Christians were mainly Jews, probably dragging them before the, the Roman uh, authorities. We saw them do that with Paul throughout the book of Acts over and over again in the very same cities, in the very same area of Asia Minor that we're reading today. One estimation is that the total population of the Roman world at this time was around 60 million and five million of them would have been Jews, and there's only like 50,000 Christians. 
That's by the estimations they do. So definitely we were a minority then, just like we are now. The Jews betrayed Christians during this time, and it went into the next century even, the second century, where we're told in the history books that they um, betrayed and handed over one of the leaders in the church in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. And he had actually been a disciple of, of John, the Apostle John, who's writing this, this, this letter. Uh, he was tried and he was martyred. So, so Jesus knows about their tribulations. He even knows what's coming for this, for this church. He understands the reasons why they are experiencing doubt, fear, and he even says poverty, like physical poverty. And he's well acquainted with slander, right? If anybody knows slander, it's Jesus. And as Western Christians, don't you sometimes look at, us, at yourself compared to the rest of the world as a Western Christian and go, what is wrong with us, right? Don't you? I do. I do it almost every day. As Western Christians, we too often assume for some strange reason, and I, I just can't put my finger on it, that we should be exempt from or at least delivered from persecution, that it should not be a part of our lives for some strange reason. Yet Christians all around the world today are facing persecution even as you and I read these words. It's a reality. This passage, as well as the entire New Testament, makes it so clear that you and I should expect persecution. We should expect it if we are truly walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. The great Christian hope is not the removal from trouble. The great Christian hope is resurrection from the dead. That's it. The great Christian hope is not health and wealth in this life. It's future glory and eternal life in Jesus Christ in the next life. That's our hope. And these Christians here in Smyrna are getting kicked around. They're experiencing real-time economic persecution. Loss of income, loss of jobs, uh, destruction of, prop of property we read about, legal trouble because of this. You see, there were these local trade guilds in every major city, and uh, they were strongly associated with pagan worship and festivals and emperor worship and all, all that stuff, all these activities. And Christians who, who stood their ground, who stood for their faith in God alone, would have been excluded from these trade guilds. But that's where work was found. That's where you made your livelihood. And it causes me to pause. Am I that faithful? Am I that willing? Another way to ask this would be, do you have a price? Is there a number where you would set aside your faith if that was the amount of money? Makes you think. Yet in spite of their material poverty, Jesus declares them what? Spiritually rich. And we're going to see this even in a, a, a bigger contrast later on when we get to the church in Laodicea. 
It said that uh, Jesus says that you're materially rich, but you're spiritually poor. Does spiritual matter more to me, matter more to you than material? Can you answer that like right away? Jesus says that we are relationally and spiritually rich. Money can't buy that. In our consumer-oriented, materialistic, driven culture, one of the greatest threats to our faithful living is not money and possessions. Our greatest threat is a love for money and possessions. The worship of those things. The faithfulness of the church at Smyrna was costing them, literally. A key question becomes, how are you and I, how are we as a church measuring our true wealth? When someone asks you, what's your net worth? Um, Do you answer with a monetary number? Yeah, um, worth a… Is that how you do it? Or the immeasurable position you have through Jesus Christ before God? So what's your net worth? Well, I I honestly couldn't tell you because it's unimaginable. Like I'm worth that much. Yeah. Before God, it's like you can't put a price on it. It's like too much. I don't know. Do you think like that during the course of a day? Or are you like looking at the bottom line? Remember the Sermon on the Mount that we did last year? We went with with Jesus through in in the Gospel of Matthew. And And he said what? Set aside... Put your treasure where? In heaven, where it's never going to be destroyed. It's an eternal investment. It reaps unbelievable, immeasurable, uh, innumerable amounts of wealth. And quit putting it here in this planet. What if the churches in the United States of America lost their nonprofit status? What if donations went way down because people were leaving the church in droves because they needed to, wanted to escape the slander, they wanted to escape the ridicule, they wanted to escape all the negative associations that were coming against Christianity? Well, how we do church would have to be revisited, wouldn't it? Uh, Maybe we don't meet in buildings like this anymore. You know, I'm not worried. Not one bit. Those who are true will remain. This is what Jesus is saying as he writes to these seven churches. Are you an overcomer? When stuff hits, are you going to stay fast? And we will spiritually flourish as we're obedient to Jesus Christ. And we will continue to do God's will on this planet until Jesus comes back, right? Yeah. But in the meantime, this is pretty awesome. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. But it's not permanent. So maybe some of you have asked as I read the passage, you said, what's the synagogue of Satan? (laughs) Like, uh, that's a location I'd like to avoid. Yeah. Well, it helps to know a little bit about the lifestyle of, uh, and, and the times in which these uh, Christians were living. Jews, 
during most of the first century um, were exempt from having to worship the emperor. Everybody else had to because the Jews were tolerated, and it's just a blessing of God. Uh, they were a monotheistic religion, and so the Romans said, I'll just let them go because if we make them worship the emperor, we're going to have to kill them all because they're not going to do it. Uh, they're better to us alive than dead. So throughout most of the first century, Christians and Jews were identified. Why? Because most Christians were Jews. They came out of Judaism, resulting in protection for Christians because they were associated with the Jews. And then came Nero, that loose, maniacal nut job in the 60s. The 60s, yeah, the 60s. And his, hor his horrific persecutions of both Jews and Christians in, in the 60s. So Christianity started to become viewed, and by the time you get to Smyrna, it's, it's really bad, as an unacceptable new religion. And the Jews then would have been motivated to disassociate and inform on Christians. The, 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 I know they might have been born a Jew, but they're really not a Jew. Please don't associate them with us. And that would have, uh, many of the Christians came out of Judaism, that would have sparked this negative um, reaction. Christians were viewed as people who dishonored the Old Testament law. They declared Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And if to a Jew, that's committing blasphemy. And Paul had already paved the way, the Apostle Paul had already paved the way for most of this attitude. And you read it in the book of Acts. He's kicked out of synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. And Jesus is saying that those, any Jew who is hostile to his disciples is not actually a true Jew anyway. They are, in reality, an assembly, a synagogue of Satan. Similar to what he described the religious Jewish elite in his day as, and he called them children of the devil. Verse 10, chapter 2. Do not, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Boy, how'd you like to get that letter? Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into present, prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers or overcomes, there's that idea again, will not be hurt by the second death. The Jews were likely pointing out to the authorities that the Christians weren't Jews, and they're not worshiping the emperor like everybody's supposed to. It's so hypocritical. It's like, we don't have to, but they do, so you should kill them because they're not. They played the same game at Jesus' trial with Pilate, the Roman governor, when in John 19, this, John recorded this too, in John 19, 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, that's Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, Pilate, you are not Caesar's friend. Like, are the Jews Caesar's friend? No, they don't care. But they're going to use this law against Jesus. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Jesus reassures his brothers and sisters in Smyrna not to fear the testing, not to fear the persecution, but it's going to come, and it's from the devil. Did you note the source? Did you note that? Our real battle is against him, 
not against flesh and blood. So let's stop that battle. And although the imprisonment will be limited, it looks like 10 days, the possibility is that it might end in martyrdom. You might lose your life. So some of you are saying, gee, I wish I knew the future. I really wish I knew what was going to happen. Really? <laughs> you, I think it's good not to know. Can you imagine for a moment, just to pretend, that we're in Smyrna and we've called a meeting and you're all from the house churches in Smyrna. We're all getting together at some place, probably out in the woods somewhere. But we're all here and during the day everybody's been saying, a letter has come from, from John, the Apostle John. And there's a piece of information in the letter to us from Jesus' own lips. We're all going to get together tonight because they didn't have photocopiers, right? They couldn't boom, 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 punch these things out. So it's like one document. It's going to be read. Um, Marcus, you're bringing food? Right, okay, so we're all going to be there. All right. Can you imagine the gathered church community at Smyrna hearing the public reading of this letter from Jesus for the first time? Gasps? Fear? Looking around the room saying, who's going to go to jail? Which of us are going to be martyred and lose our life? Oh my, this is really going to happen because this is a prophecy from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. It's going to happen. These seven letters that I'm reading to you over a four-week period are read on a regular basis to believers around the world who are going through persecution just like this. And I am told by them that they find renewed hope in the reading of these letters, that they receive comfort, that they get encouragement, they relate. The Apostle Paul suffered a lot. We read his story in Acts. And he flatly says in at least three or four places, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And God's people have always, for 2,000 years, been challenged to follow him faithfully, even if it results in suffering or in death. And Jesus says, I'll give you life as your victor's crown. You get life, not death. They can take your life, but there will never be a second death for you if you're one of mine. And the one who has conquered death, Jesus, he promises life to those who overcome. This victor's crown is a Stephanus crown. It's like, you know how you see some of the statues from ancient Greece and Rome, and they have that, those laurel wreaths around, you know, sticking out the front like this. And uh, it's given to athletes who have overcome obstacles in an athletic contest, and they are the winners. They come in first. They endured. They overcame those obstacles. And you and I, we run a race for God every day. And there's countless obstacles, and they come in all shapes, forms, and sizes. And it's by His endurance that we can overcome those. It's not you and me. It's not in our own strength. Heaven forbid because I'll fall flat on my face. The victor's crown is because of Jesus. It's our, it's our coming resurrection life. 
It's our true hope, not all the stuff of this life, but what's next. And in the second death, take note, it's defined for us later in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, uh, specifically if you want to look it up, it's verse 8. It's the lake of fire. That's the second death. The second death is eternal death and separation from God where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ultimately, everyone who rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior doesn't end up in hell. They end up in the lake of fire. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who suffered at the hands of the Nazis in World War II, and he was hanged by the direct order of Himmler on April the, the 9th, 1945, Ironically, only a short time later, the Allies liberated the camp in which he was held prisoner. But he wrote this, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Jesus suffered. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Before we go look at the next church, which is Pergamum, I want us to pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We are encouraged and comforted by these words. But we also know that our brothers and sisters around the world, your children, do suffer. And there are many here today who have suffered for the cause of your Son and our Savior Jesus. And we pray and we thank you for the encouragement we receive, for the renewed strength to endure that comes only from you. We are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. In Revelation chapter 2, in verses 12 through 17, we get the third message from Pergamum. I've got it up there on a map for you to see. Um, one, one thing, side note, side note. Um, when you look at the seven churches on that map there, there's actually a road, a Roman road, that's still in existence today. Heads up, Michigan. Yeah. You can make roads that last. Um, and it links, starting with, with Ephesus, it goes all the way around, like in a, in a, and it comes back up. It links all these churches. So this, this letter of, of Revelation would have gone to Ephesus first, then it would have gone to Smyrna, and it would have made the rounds all, all around this road. It's, it's just a side note. doesn't mean anything. I just think it's cool. Jesus commends them for also persevering in faithfulness in spite of the persecution. Same things are going on in most of these cities. But he warns them not to compromise. Well, if there is something going on in the church of the world today, it's compromise. To compromise with an adulterous and immoral culture all around them. That's such a fine line. This could easily have been written to Grace Chapel. Actually, it is. Pergamum is an intellectual and religious hub for Asia Minor. Um, it's one of the centers for emperor worship, uh, that, that cult that was going on big time. And some of the Christians apparently had caved into the pressure, which is understandable, but it's not acceptable. Verse 12, And to the angel... Of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp 
two-edged sword. Every one of these introductions goes back to that vision of Jesus, and one little piece of that is taken and applied to each church. Two-edged swords, um, they symbolize warfare or judgment. This particular sword we read in chapter 1, verse 16, comes right out of Jesus' mouth. Whoa. There is sheer power in the very words of Jesus to execute judgment on his enemies. And the Roman government, any government on this planet, may have the right to execute capital punishment. It's known as the right of the sword. But Jesus is the only one who holds the power over life and death. Matthew 10, 28, he told his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell, Pergamum. I get it. You dwell where Satan's throne is. He's got power here. He's ruling with authority here. Yet you hold fast my name, and you, do not, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. <clears throat> Jesus totally understands the difficulties faced by his brothers and sisters wherever they are in this world. Your life does not escape his notice. He knows you by name. But Satan's also alive, and he rules here for a while. And Jesus does not mention, does mention one of the, the church members here. It's interesting throughout the rest of the book. We're not given specific names of saints, but for some reason here we get one, and his name is Antipas. And apparently he personally experienced the power of Rome to take his life, and God allowed that. But because he had remained true to the person and the character of Jesus Christ, Jesus identifies him as my faithful witness. Do you know that that is the very same title used of Jesus himself back in Revelation chapter uh, 1, verse 5? Jesus is the faithful witness, and he calls Antipas my faithful witness. Pastor Richard Wormbrand and his wife Sabina are founders of an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. Have you heard of Voice of the Martyrs? It's very well known. It's been around for a long time. He and his wife are no strangers to persecution, like real persecution. As a Romanian minister, Richard watched as his country fell under the control of communism. And that's, a, that's an ideology and political movement that demands ultimate loyalty. And he watched as many pastors around him abandoned their witness for Jesus Christ for the sake of security, for the sake of income. But this powerful ministry couple continued to speak out in the name of Jesus Christ, whatever the cost, and as a result, Richard suffered many, many years of brutal imprisonment and torture. When he was finally freed, the Wormbrands took the lead in alerting the world as to what's going on with the persecuted church, the sufferings of Jesus Christ's body here on earth. 
You can learn more about the Wormbrands in their book and in the movie uh, Tortured for Christ and more about what's going on today in the persecuted church around this world at persecution.com. But a faithful witness. So I have to ask, and I hope you ask yourself, am I? Are we faithful witnesses? Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there in your church who are holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You see, obedience in one area of your life does not cover up does not excuse disobedience in another area of your life. Yet that's how most of us think. We're like, I've come this far. I've given up so much. This is just something. You know, I, I, st- I, know, I know I still got this, but yeah, it, it's okay for now. No, it's not, according to Jesus. We're pretty good at using that excuse, but Jesus isn't buying it. In the practice of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, we looked at the Nicolaitans last week because they're in Ephesus too. They're cults. They're religious cults that were encouraging believers to use their real freedom in Jesus Christ to go and participate in the things that were going on in their culture, particularly pagan worship activities where at those festivals, and if you were uh, a potter or you were a merchant, you, you, to survive, you had to belong to these cults and go to these festivals, and at them you would eat food that had been offered to idols. There was all kinds of sexual immorality and temple prostitutes, um, and there was definitely the worship of the emperor saying, he is a god. Bow down, worship Caesar. And Christians who refused to compromise suffered social, economic persecution, or as we see with Antipas, even worse. Today, I don't know about you, but I'm not struggling with eating food offered to an idol at a pagan festival. I'm struggling eating too much food at festivals. (laughs) But we do struggle, don't we? We struggle with other culturally adopted practices, culturally accepted practices. Practices that in our current nation are becoming more and more acceptable. But they're just as idolatrous as joining in a guild festival where there's an emperor being worshipped. Where might we compromise? You probably already know in your life, right? Where you see it in your family. How about how we use our God-given material possessions, how we use them. What are they for? How about celebrity worship, both Christian and non-Christian? How about more and more free sexuality and all that that's going to mean for our, our kids and our grandkids? How about our view of money and taxes? Oh, Peter, don't go to taxes. Just leave that alone. That's, that's sacred. Put that off to the side. No. What about our view about all that? There's a fine line between encouraging each other to interact with our culture for the sake of the gospel and our compromising with that culture. It's a very fine line. 
And I'm afraid the church goes over it way too often. So what do you do when the Holy Spirit of God inside of you convicts you about something that you're practicing? Quit, quit messing with other people. Just take care of yourself. And, and, and you're convicted about it, and you're like, oh, I, I gotta t- I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Well, remember the repentance that Jesus asked the church in Ephesus to do last week? Well, look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. You see, there's still time. You can make this right. Repent. If not, now understand, like get, the, get, get this vision. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't want to be around when that goes down. Do you? The church in Ephesus dealt with the, the false teaching and the compromise properly, but they lost their love, their first love in the, in the process. This church in Pergamum needed to be more firm, like the church in Ephesus. You don't want that sword against you. You want that sword for you. Our sin can be so dumb, can't it? Think of, think of some of the sins that have crept into your life over the years. So dumb. If the consequences of some of my sins weren't so horrible, in retrospect, they're almost laughable. It's like, what were you thinking, right? I'm sure that the evil one is laughing, but we shouldn't laugh. I, I read this great illustration this week. I want to share it with you because it it helped picture this for me. We hear, we hear stories about people who welcome big cats like tigers into their homes, right? And do you scratch your head and go, you idiot. I'm sorry, if you own a tiger, I'm... But we all have a pretty good idea how such stories are likely to end, Right? While we would be surprised if a man was killed by his pet hamster, we are not at all surprised, are we, to hear of a man being mauled to death by his pet tiger? Why are we not surprised? Because it's a tiger. Didn't you see that coming? And there are a couple of problems with welcoming a tiger into your home as a pet. First, People welcome tigers into their homes as pets when they're cuddly, cute little pups, cubs, I think they're called. Tiny, helpless, furry, oh, adorable. Who in this room has not had their heartstrings tugged by the playful pouncing of a baby tiger? I have. They're my favorite animal, by the way. Second, tigers are undomesticated. They have not, over the course of successive generations, been bred away from ferocity or wanting to eat meat. The best of them that's available for you to buy today is just a few generations removed from the rainforest. Welcoming a tiger into your home is a vivid metaphor for you and I to consider today for welcoming sin into our life, compromise. Sins are at first, what? Very small. 
They are far removed from the sin in its full-blown form as a, as a weak old tiger is removed from its fully grown form. Yet sins grow up like tigers grow up, don't they? They gain size, they gain strength, they gain ferocity, and they can kill. They destroy, they ruin homes. It does not take long for a 20-pound cub to turn into a 400-pound adult tiger. It does not take long for a wandering eye to grow into adultery. It does not take long for a grumbling heart to grow into theft. It does not take long for an angry spirit to grow into hate and maybe even murder. And then there's the problem of domestication. The sins you and I permit into our lives appear to be harmless when we first welcome them in. And we are easily convinced that we can contain them. I've got this. It's not that bad. It's just a little thing. They offer no real danger to me or anybody else. Kind of fun, actually. No one welcomes a tiger into their home thinking that it will someday eat them for lunch. Right? And in much the same way, a sinful heart is convinced that it can look at some things, softer things, without being drawn into the full-blown thing. That it can be emotionally attached to another person without eventually committing adultery. That it can dabble in whatever without going all in. The sinful heart, like the owner of a tiger, thinks it can contain the ferocity, that it can be the one who persuades it to, to only go so far but no further. I wonder, I wonder if the person who has welcomed a tiger into their home is truly surprised in that brief moment between seeing it pounce and feeling its teeth close in on their neck. You brought it into your home. You raised it up. You saw it get big. You saw it get strong. You saw it get powerful. You saw its claws form and its teeth grow. You knew it had a craving for death, for blood, for meat. It should have been no surprise that one day it turned on you. No surprise at all. For a while, you may have been its owner, but you were never its master. Don't ever fool yourself. We are never the masters of any sin, no matter how small. We introduce them into our lives on their terms, not ours. We have welcomed them in. It's our fault. No one else's. So it's just a matter of time before sins grow. They become big enough to turn on us. They become big enough to kill us. They become big enough to do what sins always do, and that's destroy. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you rise with me? We're going to sing 
our praises to the only one worthy to receive our worship today. It's why we're here. Yes, there's other stuff that goes on. There's community, there's friendships, there's, there's, um, there's uh, education, there's all kinds of things going on. But those are secondary, every one of them, to the worship of God, and we do this together as one. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and in response to your precious word, we now sing from our hearts, not just our voices, not just with our mouth, but with our hearts. We confess, we repent, and we ask you for the strength to endure whatever today has and to be faithful and to love people as we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.